The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Amplifier Advisors, LLC, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jonathan Aberman. Technology, particularly the Internet, has dramatically changed our economy and in many ways is now the largest and most influential part of our economy. It's come a long way, but also it's come a long way culturally. What started out in many people's views as small groups of people largely pursuing computers and software as a hobby has definitely become a mature industry. How it's managing this apparent conflict between the ideology of a hacker and open culture to companies that are holding our most personal information is really a topic that we're going to really drill down on today in our show. What is our government likely to do as this conflict plays out? I'm joined by three experts to talk about these issues today and get their perspectives. Mark Walsh is a serial entrepreneur and investor who's had a big hand in the creation of many internet and media businesses, including AOL, HBO, and other household names. Ali Schweitzer is a reporter, business and development at WAMU 88.5 here in town, and she follows and reports closely on the development of technology policy and regulations. Stuart Verdery is a CEO of Monument Policy Group. He serves as a high-ranking government official in both the executive branch and Congress, and he advises on many of the issues we're going to talk about today. Whether it's Facebook or Lime, it seems the tech's gotten to the point where it just seems to push against externalities and in many cases ignores them. I wonder whether or not this hacker culture that we hear about in Silicon Valley lore really has become more of a, of a shield to avoid accountability than a reason. So what's going to happen in our society? Is regulation the answer cause? I want to get after it. Mark, I'll start with you. Uh, you've been very much involved, I would say, early on from the commercialization of the Internet. When I say the term hacker culture to you, what does that mean to you? Well, just for perspective, I got on the internet in 86 when it really wasn't even called the internet yet. It was, you know, the dial-up X.25 uh, modem uh, uh, standards and uh, and bulletin boards, BB bulletin board culture. So, yeah, hacker was one of the terms that the that world called itself. Um, it was renegade. It was against the man. You know, we were all trying to change how giant retailers and giant uh, information providers like newspapers were screwing us over and we were going to liberate everything and make sure that um, you had access to anything you wanted. So if you're if you're up against the man, quote unquote, I'm using air quotes here because it's radio, if you're up against the man, be the word hacker or whatever label you want to put on it, you always feel like you're doing the right thing by shoving down the walls of a castle that shouldn't be there. Uh, and I think to your point, that's completely changed because now the internet is the man. Uh, forgive the sexism of that term, but the internet is the castle. Uh, but I, I would just finish with this, which is, you know, why are we surprised? We, we gave our data to these people. You know, nobody put a gun to our heads as consumers or as businesses and said, you must start using this. It was completely voluntary. We all knew, those of us who were conscious, knew that privacy died decades ago. And I'm sort of, I sometimes I get, get a little sadly amused at how folks are saying, gee, this the genie's out of the bottle, and this is changing life negatively forever, and we have to we have to put a cap on it and put wrap this up in some sort of regulation. I agree in regulation, but I think you know to say that uh, that the dark forces suddenly turned this lovely thing from X.25 modems and bulletin boards in 1986 into this corporate devil are really not paying attention to the fact that we allowed it. Well, so from your perspective, therefore, there really is not a surprising 
difference between where we are now and, and, and where we were then. I think there's no difference because you could draw a line from then to now, and it's not a very squiggly line. It's a pretty straight line. If information started to become added and added and added in an HTTP world, and people had access to it, and the ubiquity of connectivity rose from dial-up to, to higher bandwidth to now the 5G and what we're going to have, it's, I think it was sort of predictable. I'm not saying that I was pressing or anybody here was pressing it, but it's pretty predictable that connectivity and content were going to turn out to be what it is today. Well, I'll come back to you on that. Uh, Stuart, I'll, I'll turn to you. From your perspective, being involved in regulation, it would seem to me that the government had a real problem and has had a consistent problem with how to manage this dichotomy between information needs to be free, protecting consumers, and also protecting commerce. How have you seen it play out? Well, there's been, you know, scrutiny on privacy um, and kind of data collection for years and years. I remember uh, Senator Wyden, who's still a leader on these issues, uh, he was calling it, he was worried about the Exxon Valdez of privacy, which was two decades ago. And you can date yourself by remembering when that shipwreck was. But he's been kind of talking about this for decades. And the question's always been, um, what's the balance between um, interfering in business practices and who would be the regulator? Um, I used to think um, until the Snowden developments of a few years ago that Americans really only had, only had time to complain about privacy. Either they were worried about the government collection or they were worried about business collection, but not both at the same time. So after 9-11, it was about the government and the other times about business. The Snowden and, and Telco uh, revelations of, of in the last couple of years have really kind of brought the two together for maybe the first time in U.S. history where people are worried about the synergy of data collection by companies and they're working with the governments either intentionally or unintentionally for really the first time. And that's why I think you've seen privacy become much more of a mainstream issue, not just amongst the kind of the black helicopter crowd on the on the right and maybe the loony left. It's now much more of a mainstream concern. And I think that's why there's likely to be uh, a regulatory or legislative response to this Congress that's just starting right now. Ali, you're covered tech and, and policy. You and I have spoken about this in other contexts. When I talk about or when you hear about People talk about the early days of the internet, you know, the hacker culture, information must be free. Do you hear that theme as you talk with entrepreneurs and people today? And how do they describe how it re how today relates to that? No, I don't hear that at all. And in fact, I would I would echo what Mark said about the internet being the man. I mean, I also look at it not so much from the perspective of entrepreneurs, but users. To your point about us being able to predict the arc, you know, looking back 2020. 25 years. I mean, look at the use cases now. I mean, people are using the internet in a way now that they didn't before. And it's also it's also been opened up to this public world of people like my grandparents who have absolutely no idea how privacy infrastructure works, but they use Facebook because it's easy. You look at that uh, that Pew survey that they did a couple years ago where they conducted, they, they were looking, Pew has been looking at people who use social media since 2005. The number of people who adopted social media between 2005 and I want to say 16 was is a 14-fold increase across all age groups, right? So there, there. Yes, you could say, you know, we should have seen this coming. On the other hand, everybody uses these networks now, and they're all signing up, and they're all looking at these TOSs that make no sense to them, and they're opting in unknowingly, giving away their data. So I do think that, even though I think that right now. 
we're starting to see not so much a change in the way tech companies are operating. I think that has been fairly consistent, but the perception of the way they operate has changed because technology has become so embedded in everyday life and particularly in social media. I have no idea if I just answered the question that you originally asked me, but I wanted to respond particularly to what you said about that, about this narrative, how we should have always known this was coming, because I, I don't think that that people understand even remotely today what is it, what is really at stake. Well, I'm going to stop there because I want to take a quick break. When we come back, let's continue this conversation. And also, I'll just point out that I saw just a little while ago a study that shows that older people are willingly and excitingly sharing fake content to the level that, frankly, disturbed me. Really enjoying this conversation. I'm looking forward to continuing it right after this break on What's Working Watching Extra. Thanks to our sponsor, Tandem Product Academy. If you're looking to grow a software technology business and you're past your first five employees or your first half a million dollars in revenue, their free educational program will teach you how to grow your business. Supported by a broad group of our region's leading business organizations and local governments, Tandem Product Academy is free to participants. Learn more at tandeminnovate.com. And we're back in this What's Working in Washington Extra. We're talking about, well, we're talking about the Internet, what's going on with the Internet, and how likely it is that we're going to see regulation and changes how government looks at the Internet over the next year. What do you think are sort of the indicia of, of how government and how society is really balancing this hacker culture vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the Internet industry's growth and development? Well, I think you had uh, several decades where politicians were largely willing to defer to what the tech industry said they needed, which was basically leave us alone. And you saw that most, maybe most notably when um, there was a push around six, seven years ago, the SOPA PIPA debate about whether websites should be liable for taking down pirated content, like copyright violations mainly. And people said that the remedy would quote, break the internet. And you had people, a bill that was about to pass and become law all of a sudden went from must pass to um, people begging to get their names off of the bill. And it went down in this, this uh, catastrophic failure um, it was kind of the rise of the internet as a power you, you shall not mess with. Fast forward five years, the industry has kind of, you know, reputation has collapsed to such extent that last year, for the first time, uh, Congress was willing to jump in and what's called the Section 230 liability. Essentially, our website's liable for bad content. In, in this case, it was about um, sex trafficking with terrible crime. And they were rolled. Senator Portman led a coalition and got the bill signed. It was the first time the internet essentially had been beaten. And I think that is now going to lead into other legislation around privacy and other things where members are not afraid to take on tech as long as they feel like they've got uh, some kind of good public interest issue on their side. So the worm has turned then? Uh, definitely. I mean, they, as I said, they, they went from the coolest kids in class to less so. I, I was going to say, I, I think that's exactly spot on. And I think it's basically due to leadership. Uh, you know, when, when Jeff Immelt or Jenny Romney, she from IBM, he formerly from GE, when they show up in front of Congress in a publicized arena, you know, the viewers sort of like, wow, these are serious men and women that are running giant corporations. But when, you know, the bro culture like Travis Kalanick or, from or, or even Mark Zuckerberg with the hoodie or even Sergey and Larry from, from Google and even Who Eric apparently Schmidt. apparently you're a first name basis with. Who's what? You're a first name basis with. Yes, them. yes, I, I am. Important. Yes, I, 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 I'm I am proud to say it. But anyway, so when those folks show up, you know, the entitlement just oozes out of them. A, B, hmm. the sort of, oh, gee, you old farts don't understand 
when they're speaking to legislative uh, leaders, both staffers or even elected leaders, which even if it's true, just comes across as so completely smarmy. And I would argue that they're kind of the they're the author of their own demise to some extent. Clearly, the code, clearly the law, clearly the violations, clearly the the uh, the impact on society was this sort of simmering brew. But I think when their appearance and their behavior and their leadership, even you know, even Sheryl Sandberg, who was supposed to be the adult in the room at Facebook, who I, I think some of us have known, I've known Cheryl a long time when she worked in the government. You know, she's an incredible person. But I just think this this tsunami of kind of um, of money, the tsunami of uh, of entitlement, the tsunami of we know better than you do has really caught up with these people. You know, I actually have a different take on that because I think I've seen the change mostly since 2016, since the election. I think that Dems, <clears throat> through the Obama administration, continue to pretty much be besties with tech. I don't think that they are, we're not seeing them roll out the red carpet any way, shape or form the way they did uh, before Trump was elected. I think that Cambridge Analytica, I think that Trump's election, and I think that a lot of these privacy issues that have been coming up have really turned a lot of these prominent Democrats against tech. I mean, look at who's introducing all this legislation that we're talking about. In both chambers, you're having Democrats are like Mark Warner taking very aggressive stands against tech and very in favor of tech regulation. And I really do think that actually has a lot more to do with politics than maybe the personalities or the leadership styles of some of these bro-ish, without a doubt, tech leaders, but I do think it has more to do with 2016. Well, they may be bro-ish and, and they may be um, oafish in how they present, but I, I do think that we should be fair to say that I think a lot of people on Capitol Hill, at least from where I sit, don't understand a lot of the nuances and challenges to technology. Well, that's true. But you, but you once really told that over and over. Oh, I'm sorry, but you know, look, I, unfortunately, everybody on the Hill who listens to the show is on click, done, don't like that guy anymore. But when, when we have experts talking about cybersecurity, for example, or many of the, the things that make the media industry and telecom and the internet work, it seems that there is a really a real strong failure of expertise in our regulators. Is that a fair assessment? That's absolutely. I mean, gosh, look at those hearings last year. I mean, the Senator We Run Ads moment that Zuckerberg had, that is very telling. I think that the depth and breadth of the legislators' ignorance on the way the Internet works was on full display, and it was very embarrassing. On the other hand, we're seeing pretty sophisticated legislation. Uh, Warner had, I think it was Axios that broke a couple years ago, this uh, Warner's white paper on the needs for tech regulations, all the, basically all the challenges that la that are that are very much front and center when you're having a conversation about real, meaningful federal regulation of tech. There's an awareness, I think, at least among legislators' staff, of how much of a mountain this is to tackle, you know, of how much infrastructure the U.S. does not have to regulate tech. I think that there are some legislators who are pretty hip, but the hearings did demonstrate the profound lack of understanding of the way that these business models function and the way the technology itself works. I do think that there is a... Um, while many of them may not understand the nitty gritty of the technology, I think there is a increasing uh, understanding and 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 uh, need to understand what is going on with with China in particular, and their kind of industrial planning on trying to be the world's permanent power in all new areas of tech, whether it's blockchain, AI, autonomous vehicles, uh, chip making, and the like. And so you see members across the spectrum saying, "Look, it's worth going to war on trade with China." to protect our ability to innovate and not just hand over kind of the keys of the kingdom to the world's largest economy with a state-run uh, exercise. I think people, even people who are nervous about the president's trade wars with Europe and Canada and Mexico and the like are more than happy to support a new look at China 
and whether the U.S. can compete with them on tech policy. Is it necessary, perhaps, to help our policymakers separate as they look at the tech into three different buckets? One being the whole question about privacy and who controls their information or access to it. The second being economic power, concentration of economic power and what that means for consumers. And the third being economic development, national security and primacy of the industries. Do we have a problem right now where they're just so conflated? You know, you go talk with Google, who spends more money than just about any tech company on innovation and berate them on privacy. Or, I would add another bucket, by the way. Yeah. I mean, certainly data breaches and national security. Hmm. I mean, that's I think that those have been kind of wrapped up into the same issue. And maybe the, the answer is a more multi-pronged policy approach to look at all these different buckets. But I think national security is a big part of this. But do you think in some ways when people are asked, for example, which tech company they trust the most or least mm. and you know facebook will end up with close to 40 percent of respondents saying i don't trust facebook with my data or you've learned that a large number of people over 65 happily share f fake news people get disgusted about this part of tech and we're throwing the baby out with the, the bathwater and we're, we're losing the ability mm. to make national decisions what baby's being thrown out when they don't trust facebook see i, I don't get this i i think you can not trust facebook and still be a great supporter of technology. I think Facebook is a standalone yeah. example of a specific application where everybody, not only did Mark Zuckerberg drink the Kool-Aid, he, he brewed the Kool-Aid and he has served it to us over and over. And I, I think he's a fabulous uh, in, innovator. But, you know, I, I don't know why we, uh, to your point about buckets, I think sometimes we let legislators and ourselves conflate everything into this giant mountain called technology. And that's okay because it is sort of a giant mountain. I tell people sometimes think of it like the automotive, automobile industry. I don't care if Senator Mark Warner knows or doesn't know how to fix a car, but he knows how to regulate safety around cars, safety around highways, safety around signals and traffic and traffic and how that goes. So I think that we're, we're conflating all these different issues in tech into one giant mountain. I think we should choose one specific bucket of the four or five that you may have referenced. And I would suggest that legislators and their staffers get deep in knowledge into one of these buckets and try and go and make a difference in it. Because right now, I believe citizens believe that they have no ability to understand and no ability to make difference. And tech is running untrammeled through our lives. And they're all worried about Germany, which wrote, which wrote a great line, or I think somebody in Germany wrote it, the right to be forgotten. And I think that most tech company executives are worried that the GDPR, I guess, is the, is the, is the moniker. What is it? GDPR. GDPR. Is going to, I know the companies that I'm on the board of that are more uh, enterprise-oriented, they're all worried about that protocol coming to this nation and being implemented ham-handedly, which is often what legislation ends up looking like. That is a great point. And the whole issue of how the European community has taken privacy and is using it as a way to now regulate the tech companies is a great place for us to stop this conversation. When we come back after the break here on What's Working Washington Extra, we want to talk about what the government will or should be doing, or what our friends down at Capitol Hill would and should be doing to balance the disaffection and anger people feel vis-a-vis -vis an enlightened tech policy. So that's what we'll talk about when we come back. Thanks to our sponsor, Tandem Product Academy. If you're looking to grow a software technology business and you're past your first five employees or your first half a million dollars in revenue, their free educational program will teach you how to grow your business. Supported by a broad group of our region's leading business organizations and local governments, Tandem Product Academy is free to participants. Learn more at tandeminnovate.com. And we're back in this What's Working in Washington Extra, talking about the internet and regulation. 
I am struck when I talk with people about technology, the level of distrust and disgust I see in a lot of citizens. I wonder if Congress is going to be able to balance that with enlightened regulation. Hey, Ali, I'll start with you. I know that you cover this a lot. Do you do you think that people are going to be able to balance it or we're going to end up with a lot of rules and regulations aren't going to do much except make people feel better? We got quite an impressive potpourri of legislation in both chambers right now that comes at tech regulation from a number of different angles. Of course, like the the, the bill that Senator Wyden out of Oregon introduced comes with these massively punitive, uh, the, the, basically, I think it was like 20 years of jail time for CEOs that lie to regulators. I mean, that that's sort of on the extreme end. And then you have other things like Warner's Honest Ads uh, bill that are a little bit more conservative. But we have this this really this like bouquet, you know, of different legislation that kind of comes at it from different angles and nothing. But, you know, and all of this is then, of course, I, sh- I would be remiss if I didn't mention California's legislation that was modeled after GDPR. And now you have tech companies that are rushing to make sure that that the feds don't pass anything even remotely like GDPR. And they want to be at the table. They want to have probably people like yourself, Stuart, want to be at the table crafting this legislation to make sure that it is, you know, nothing like GDPR, basically. And Stuart, you do work with a lot of tech companies and they're trying to make sense of all this. What are you uh, what are you telling folks this year is going to look like for them? Well, the whole era, the Trump era has been the most chaotic I've ever seen in terms of a policymaking process because the administration doesn't have as many fixed views as normal. And now you have divided government. So I think, um, you know, the crystal ball is a little cloudy these days. Um, I, one thing I'm, I'm trying to keep a close eye on, and we have we have offices in San Francisco and in Seattle where we're on the ground a lot. And, you know, the employee bases of some of these tech companies themselves are now jumping into the advocacy market. So they're asking their own companies or tech more broadly to engage on whether it's diversity issues, whether they want their technology to be used for government programs, defense programs, or immigration enforcement programs uh, to weigh in on court battles and the like. And so it is very interesting to see that, you know, essentially the employees aren't always in the same place as some of their executives or, or their lobbyists. Mm. Um, and you have to answer to that because they, they the employee bases matter a lot to them. So uh, you know, my my I guess my um, guess would be I think there will be a privacy uh, law passed during this Congress. I think it meets uh, kind of a synergy of what Trump, uh, the Trump administration is looking for from a consumer protection agenda. And there's enough consensus in Congress that something needs to be done. Um, I think something will happen. Uh, the other thing I would uh, keep an eye on is whether the Democrats um, bring back the Office of Technology Assessment, which is a a, a arm of the government that used to help Congress deal with t- uh, tough technical issues like they have a budget office. And that might be something that might g- give some good education to otherwise kind of overwhelmed and um, uh, members and staff who have a lot of other issues to work with as well. Yeah, I, I'm in favor of more data, not less for things like this. Mark, you're an investor. You start tech companies. You, you chaired various tech companies. As you look at the current situation, what's your best view on how entrepreneurs should be looking at the world right now? You know, it's a, it's a really strange time. I think uh, all three of us as your panelists are expressing sort of different versions of that. I'm very worried about sort of backlash. And I don't know what it's going to take the form of. Not backlash necessarily by legislators, schooled or unschooled or, or without an Office of Technology Assessment. And just as a sidebar, I'd like to say, uh, please start that again. Because when I served in the Obama administration, that was one of our our colleagues and our neighbors, and they were fully informed. You can argue with their politics, but they were fully informed. And they did brief the Hill, I think, in very helpful ways. I do not understand why this administration shut it down or ceased to fund it. But I'm, I think I'm worried about some backlash that's going to take sort of Luddite-like formats. And I'll give you one example. I believe that autonomous vehicles are going to be attacked by people that think this is 
you know, one step too far. That they their lives have been taken over socially by by Facebook. Their lives have their information search lives have been taken over by Google. Their um, their their ability to book a trip has been taken over by travel. Book a hotel room has been taken over by, by, by travelocity or maybe improved by travelocity. And I think that they're going to ha- say one day they're going to see a car that's not being driven and say enough is enough. And I think we're going to see torches in the streets and people actually attacking. Uh, cars that are not being driven, and I think it will stunt that specific industry. And I think we, that'll be a dumb. Seen that. We've already it's seen that. Already happening happening, but I think it's, yeah. it's going to happen like all over the place in ways that are actually extraordinarily detrimental and potentially fatal. Lots of people, like buses and stuff like that. So I, I think that the sort of vox populi is starting to get kind of more and more pissed. The final point I'll make is I believe a part of that the ability that they're being pissed is because of the money. My son worked for a small venture capital backed startup in Palo Alto, but he lived in San Francisco. He took two buses and a train to get to work every day. It's like an hour and 45 minutes. And his girlfriend who worked at Google got on the greatest bus you've ever seen right next to her apartment and rode down to Google with lattes and online. Everything was perfect. Right. And my son, God, they're now married, so I guess it didn't destroy the relationship. But every day he was like, you rich DBs versus us poor schmucks trying to start a real company in the enterprise space. And I think that schism is actually echoed throughout all chunks of America today. And the money, uh, you know, as, as Warren Zevon, God rest his soul, once said, money changes everything. And I think it's going to start to come back. Of course, Silicon Valley, we now know you can rent a studio apartment for two cats. So the, <laughs> the bubble has clearly burst. I assume you saw that story a few I, weeks ago. I know ago. the cats. I well, know my exactly, as do I. Yeah. So before we go, let's do this, uh, each of you. Let's do a takeaway. Ali, I'll start with you, Ali Schweizer. What's your, your big takeaway for uh, this conversation? I think there's a lot of energy right now, particularly among Democrats, to pass some kind of meaningful regulation. But I think mostly what we can see in 2019, there might be more whistleblowers, there might be more investigations, there might be more more hot air. I think that Democrats really want to get something done on this, but I don't think we can really expect sweeping federal legislation that really regulates tech this year. Um, but I do also think that the tech companies are basically preparing for inevitable regulation and they're doing all that they can to make sure that they have at least a seat at the table, if not most of the seats at the table, to make sure they can craft whatever legislation is coming down the pike. Sir Verdery, how about you? Um, I think politicians that want to get ahead of the curve really need to focus on the future of work and what automation and technology is doing to kind of um, the workforce prospects for all of us who don't go to Ivy League schools or don't have some kind of advanced degree in in the STEM. Um, Because, you know, you think of the truck driving industry, if they're all going to go to autonomous trucks, what happens to that whole industry and that you can go down the line with different industries. So you see it from people like Marco Rubio and Mark Warner thinking, what are we going to do to educate the next generation of Americans um, to have viable employment prospects. Not everyone's gonna be able to sit on a beach, you know, being served the different apps and the like. So somebody has to work. And what are those future jobs going to look like? Mark Walsh, last word. I think that Trump has shown that Twitter is effectively the death knell of political campaign media purchasing. That if a candidate can get enough Twitter followers, he or she can generate buzz, can generate message management, can generate loyalty and can generate action, even legislative action, completely bypassing all the normal channels of media management, of relationship management, of constituent management. So I think Twitter is going to have some come-to-Jesus moment with Donald Trump in the next 36 months. And don't forget to follow us at, at What's Working DC. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Ali Schweizer, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Stuart Verdi, thanks for coming. Thank you. And Mark Walsh, it's always a pleasure. Great to be here. So What's Working in Washington Extra, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.
Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan, online writer Barbara Ulrich, music provided by two DC region bands, Two Car Living Room, and The Sunbathers. Tweet us at, at What's Working DC and tell us what you think of the show. Don't forget to like us on iTunes. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for listening. See you next time. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Monday afternoons at 2.30 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.